I'm in the middle of working on a new philosophy of mind book, actually. Sort of tongue-in-cheek temporary title is uh, Tractatus Cognitio Philosophicus. Oh, so man, that's good. A, sort of a pompous joke on Wittgenstein. Good. Who, who had the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. Yeah. Which was itself a joke on Spinoza's earlier work, which, which had a similar <laughs> title, right? My goal in the new Tractatus is to write a philosophy of the mind and universe, which can be read by an early stage AGI to, to shape its thinking about intelligence. You suck it in to the early stage AGI's knowledge base. Now it can then rewrite and revise everything you've told it, but you're seeding, you're seeding its conceptual self-organization. If you have an AGI system that has an explicit logical reasoning component to it, along with neural net components, for example, which is what I'm doing with my OpenCog Hyperon project that we'll come to, then part of the seed ontology that guides the AGI's learning can be, you know, explicit logical theories of the world, right? So then, yeah. then you can take your philosophy of mind and you can feed your own goofy half-baked philosophy of mind mm -hmm. and feed that into the AGI's mind as explicit logical content into mm. the logical portion of it, of its sort of multi-component mind. But then, yeah, Tractatus Cognitio Philosophicus, it's designed for human consumption, but also largely for the AGI's, AGI's consumption. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. I have with me Dr. Ben Gertzel. This is a dude I've been wanting to get on the podcast for years since I started the podcast. He is a philosopher, a uh, philosopher of mind. He holds to a particular theory of mind called patternism. He's written books on it. Um, he's an AI theorist, artificial intelligence theorist. He helped popularize and coin the word, uh, the, the phrase artificial general intelligence, uh, which is what you think of in, in sci-fi, uh, a AI, a robot that is generally intelligent, that thinks the way humans do, a thinking machine, not just a specialized AI like, like we have uh, today. He's also like an AI engineer. He was, uh, I have oh, stats here, and there's just too much to even look at. Um, okay, so he was the chief scientist for Hanson Robotics. That's the uh, Sophia robot. Some of you have seen on my social. I got to meet Sophia the other day. Uh, he made the algorithm and the software behind Sophia, which is fantastic. He's, they're creating a metaverse called the Sophiaverse. Like this dude is a sci-fi genius, like from a sci-fi movie. I love this guy. He's really fun to talk with. Uh, I think we probably disagree a lot philosophically, but I don't really care. I just want to hear him talk. So this episode is really fun. We go in deep on like trans nihilism, different views of the world. Are we in ultimate reality? Uh, one of the questions I asked him was why? Why uh, spend so much time working on AGI and not uh, a metaverse? What's the deal? Like, which, which one has more leverage and why? And he explains. So we go all over the place. We didn't quite get to consciousness, but that's next time. And he's going to come back on. He's also writing a philosophy book to train his artificial general intelligence uh, on philosophy. So that's pretty wild. I'm really excited to see that book. He said he's going to come on and talk, with it. talk about that one as well. So I'm just super duper excited. Uh, I hope you guys like this one. If you like the, the podcast, 
please consider supporting it on Patreon or on YouTube members. Wherever you're getting this at, you can find those links in the description. You can find merch. There's a bunch of different ways to keep these lights on, to keep me uh, <clears throat> able to feed my dogs and able to get top-notch, world-leading scholars like Ben Gertzel on the podcast. So without further ado, let's bring in Dr. Ben Gertzel and let's talk about artificial general intelligence. All right. So Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I've had uh, I've had some unsupervised learning on lots and lots of Ben Gertzel material, but now uh, I'm looking to have some some reinforced learning with Ben Gertzel in the loop, with some uh, Ben Gertzel feedback. So before we jump in, I got to make sure I got to ask you something. Um, are Are you an AGI yourself? Well, that's that depends on the definition of AGI, which is one <laughs> of the things we're we're going to dig into, right? Sure. That's very true. I just didn't know if there was like some kind of grand prize, if you had you had been an AGI from like a previous Ben Gertzel and and maybe I win like a golden chick ticket and you give me a chocolate factory or something. Well, you've se you've seen Terminator, right? I, I mean, there's a possibility of uh, AGIs coming back in time from yeah. uh, from the post post singularity to help facilitate the singularity's emergence. So I That's can. Right. Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny such rumors. <laughs> that's good. That's well. That was actually one of my other questions: was uh, if any, if any time travelers have been showing up trying to assassinate you or uh, or Rachel Sinclair recently? No, they've they've they've, they've mostly been uh, very helpful, uh, friendly, and benevolent time travelers. So that's great. <laughs> we've we've been we've been fortunate. Uh, uh, that's so good. Well, for the for the audience here, um, here's here's where I'm I'm hoping to go. It's kind of. Um, it's kind of a large task. I don't know if we'll get there all the way, but I'm I'm looking to talk to Ben about you know what is AI and what is AGI, um, why someone might want to make AGI, three promising ways uh, one might go about making AGI, uh, including uh, Ben's view or Ben's current project uh, Hyperon, and then uh, asking some questions about his patternist philosophy of mind and whether or not Hyperon uh, could be phenomenally conscious in the future. So um, Ben, this is this is awesome, man. We met at Mindfest 2023, right. uh, but yeah. I, I'd first heard of you on the Lex Friedman podcast, which I still think is probably one of his best episodes ever. And I, I, I think that partially because uh, I was taking a break from writing my master's thesis and you, I was listening to you and, and him talk and you started talking about Mikhail Bakhtin and uh, polyphony. And it, it yeah. blew my mind because I was writing my master's thesis on Mikhail Bakhtin's interpretation um, of Dostoevsky's authorship. So I was like, man, this is crazy. I knew I was going to like you. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that, but as I've come to learn more of your stuff, I've read some of your books, read a lot of your papers and, and listened to your podcasts. And I keep getting like this, uh, like Kevin Flynn vibe from Tron. Are, are you familiar with Tron? Have you seen the Tron movies at all? Tron. I did see the movie Tron way, way back. Yeah. That, that, that was like the first 3d graphics movie right. E ever. Right. So I, I saw yeah. it in the theater when it, first came out but i haven't thought about it much since uh it's awesome well he's he's like a real smart dude but he's also really chill and cool and it's like you man yeah. like you're you're super smart but then you're like super chill and cool and and so as i'm looking into this stuff more and more a lot of the people who remind me of you at least in movies they all work on metaverse stuff so i wanted to see like why why uh why not go in for like a digital a digital world instead of um instead of making agi how'd that happen <laughs> So I became interested in AI really in the early 70s when I, I first saw robots on TV and the robots in the, the original 
Star Trek with Kirk and, and, and Spock and, and all that. And yeah. I remember an early Star Trek episode where there was some defective buggy AI robot zooming around the, the galaxy wreaking havoc. And Kirk and Spock basically destroyed it by tricking it into a logical paradox, which caused its circuits to fry. And I must have been like three or four when watching this, but I was like, this makes no sense. Like if people, if people can deal with logical paradoxes, like why couldn't this robot? It's just a, another hunk of, of matter of a, of a, of a different kind. So I, I didn't, I didn't, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't buy it that they could, build this amazing robot sending around the universe, but they, they couldn't, you know, teach it to reason about X equals not X. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but that got me into science fiction AI and it didn't take long, even as like a preschool age kid for me to come to the conclusion, like once you made a machine smarter than people, that machine is going to invent things smarter than it and more and more and more amazing, amazing stuff. Right. right. So it seemed like that's the master key. Once you've created the AGI, if the AGI likes you, then that solves all the, all the other problems too. And totally. there were, there were many other things that are interesting and exciting to me. And I mean, I read, a little later than that, when I was 10 or 11 or something, a book called The Prometheus Project yeah. by a, a Princeton physicist, Gerald Feinberg. He said, in the next few decades, we're going to create machines smarter than us. We're going to create nano machines that can create any form of matter we want. And we're going to cure aging and death. And the question will be, what do we do with that? Do we promote hmm. rampant consumerism or do we expand consciousness or what? Yeah. And is this controlled in a democratic way or is this controlled by an elite? Right. So. That was all laid out in Feinberg's book from the late 60s. That I read in, in, in the mid 70s. We didn't have the term singularity then, but basically yeah. it was the current vision of the singularity. But it was clear of all the ingredients there, AI had the most potential to sort of mm. facilitate all the other things happening. So, of course, virtual worlds are really cool. I mean, post singularity, most life is going to happen in engineered simulated realities re- 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 rather than and it, i l- let me say is going to be in realities that are known to be engineered and simulated the reality uh, we're yeah. in now may, 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 may also be but we don't have solid knowledge of that right so it's going to yeah. occur in explicitly engineered virtual realities but why not work on virtual reality and metaverse instead of ai well once you got the virtual reality and metaverse that may facilitate emergence of AGI, but it doesn't build it for you. Once you build oh, the yeah. AGI, that can build the metaverse for you, right? So that, that's got, yeah. it's got the most leverage. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I mean, it also felt like the most fascinating intellectual puzzle to me, right? Sort of the Mm. recursive aspect of being a general purpose mind that figures out how general purpose minds work. (laughs) That seemed like it's an even bigger puzzle than like unifying general relativity and, 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 and quantum mechanics or building time machines. And certainly a bigger puzzle than the fascinating, difficult technical issues involving in building metaverses. I mean, although those are, those are, those are thorny issues issues also but but i think all these things are 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 going to come soon so we we live in an incredibly bizarrely exciting time right where we can look at i mean we can wonder about is it going to be three five eight ten twelve years till we have machines smarter than us and after we have machines smarter than us you know is it going to be six months or five years until they create machines that are massive super intelligences so there's details on the path that we don't yet know but i mean the fact that these things are years or even decades away by a solid you know rational scientific analysis yeah rather than centuries or millennia away or you know impossible i mean that that's that's pretty in, in, incredible right and that's, yeah. that's uh, so that's yeah fascinating time to be working on this stuff. But mm-hmm. I, I would say my my idea to focus on AGI as the sort of point of the most leverage mm-hmm. in the spectrum of amazing advancing technologies, it seems it seems even more apropos now than it did in the seventies or, 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 or ten years ago. So I mean it feels feels like it was the right the right guesstimate of what to focus on. Yeah, seriously, big time. Well, um so I, I read a bit of the hidden path, a patternist philosophy of mind. I'm studying uh to be a philosopher of mind, so I was really fascinated by this. And in there you you mentioned um trans uh, nihilism uh, or what you called Philip K. Dick's uh, semi-reality. And, and we share a mutual love for Philip K. Dick. I wore his uh, Do Androids Dream Ooh. Electric Sheep here. Yeah. Um, and I, I wondered um, if trans nihilism, so it's just this view that like the world may not be objectively uh, real as as naive realists, maybe maybe take it to be. I wonder if well, that, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I, so I've been heavily driven by philosophy of mind since I first encountered it as a teenager, I I guess. I mean, my first forays into AI were more driven on the physics and computer science side. Okay. But then it quickly seemed that like we just didn't have enough solid knowledge about either how the brain works or human cognition works. Like there's solid knowledge about some things. We had a lot of knowledge about the hierarchical neural nets behind computer vision. You know, we had mathematical logic that told us something about very abstract thinking, but there are many, many gaps in our understanding of how intelligence works based on science. And so that then 
how do you fill in those gaps, right? And <laughs> philosophy, at least, at least, was trying, right? It, it was trying <laughs> to trying to come up with some conceptual framework for how the mind should work or must work based on, you know, principles of coherence and sense and based to some extent on on introspection when you get into phenomenological philosophy. So so I first got into philosophy of mind sort of trying to figure out how to fill in the gaps of what science told us about how to make thinking machines. Of course, after a while, philosophy also becomes its its own end because just trying to understand trying to understand everything at a foundational level yeah. becomes a goal in itself. Now the the hidden pattern I wrote in 2006 as a sort of summary of a bunch of philosophical works I'd written over previous years. So there, there's a more recent lengthy paper I wrote, which is called Yuri Physics, E-U-R-Y Physics, which summarizes some of my more recent thinking on the philosophy of the mind, the life, uh, the, the universe and, and, and everything. And actually I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of working on a new philosophy of, wow. of, 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 of mind book uh, actually, which is a sort of the tongue in cheek temporary title is a uh, tractatus cognitio philosophicus. Oh man, so that's it's good. A sort of a, Pompous joke on uh, Wittgenstein, Good. who had the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, yeah. which was itself a joke on Sp- Spinoza's er- er- earlier work, which which had a similar <laughs> title, right? So, but yeah. you know, my goal in the new Tractatus is to write a philosophy of the mind and universe, which can be read by an early stage AGI to to shape its thinking about mm. about intelligence. So my my first thought was to write it in predicate logic form yeah. or in Lojban. So you're writing a philosophy of mind in a logical form, right. then you suck it in to the early stage AGI's knowledge base. Now it can then rewrite and revise everything you've told it, but you you're seeding you're seeding its conceptual self-organization process. Now yeah. With advances of large language models, what I think you can just write it in English, and for for some portions of the text, I will give an explicit translation into formal logic, just to give it give it a clear clue of the style in which I want yeah. these philosophical pronouncements to be translated in, into logic, and then then let the AI do the rest of the translation in, in, into logic to feed mm-hmm. its, its, its reasoning engine. But I mentioned this because it, it indicates, you know, I do think coming to a conceptual understanding of the mind and world is, is important. And of course, AI systems need to learn from experience, right? Yeah. And the, yeah. I mean, an AGI, an artificial general intelligence, a system that can generalize beyond its training and its and it's programming, it learns how to be an AGI in part by trial and error and by guided trial and error in interacting with other minds. So learning from experience is a key part of a worthy AGI architecture becoming an actual operational AGI. However, you know, humans learn from experience 
in a way that's seated and guided by our brain structure, right? And so it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's the old dichotomy of nature versus nurture obviously is very oversimplistic. I mean, there's self-organization, which happens in the humans in the fetal brain already. So there's nature and nurture. Then there's environment modulated self-organization. And there's also the fact that nature largely takes the form of structures that bias nurture and self-organization right. in a probabilistic way, providing some guidance to that self-organization and, you know, nurtured learning yeah. rather than nature, like programming exact, exactly. So I got yeah, um, handcrafted knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. The syntax of language is not there in the brain. Right. But nor is the brain really learning language from nothing. An inductive bias to learn certain sorts of syntactic and semantic structures is, is encoded in, in, in the brain, which yeah. is why we're biased to learn certain sorts of sorts of languages, right? So yeah. but when you're building an AGI, what sort of bias does the AGI get? Well, there's the bias implicit in the initial algorithms and data structures that you give the AGI which it then may ultimately rewrite if it's a sufficiently, you know, re reflectively powerful AGI. Yeah. But, but you can also give the AGI a sort of seed ontology. And we have a seed ontology built into our brains in various different ways. Like we have, we have certain ways of reacting to mom and dad, which are just w wired in. I yeah. mean, we have, you know, the hippocampus has a top-down top down visual view of the world and its place cells. The parietal cortex has face-centered and eye-centered views of the world built in. Yeah. So the linkage of this top-down and this first-person view of the world and the fact that you can convert back in between them, like this is part of our seed ontology wired into our, our brain. Now, an AGI's seed ontology doesn't have to take exactly the same form that the human brain seed ontology does. Right. So if you have an AGI system that has an explicit logical reasoning component to it, along with neural net components, for example, which is what I'm doing with my OpenCog Hyperon project that we'll come to, then, then part of the seed ontology that guides the AGI's learning can be you know, explicit logical theories of the world, right? So then, yeah. then you can take your philosophy of mind and you can feed your own goofy half-baked philosophy of mind and <laughs> feed that into the AGI's mind as explicit logical content into mm. the logical portion of, it, of its sort of multi-component mind. The important thing is just you let it revise this content however it wants and refute every idea you, 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 get, you, get, you gave it yeah. based on its own experience, but, but you're still seeding, you're still seeding it with this, with this process, right? You're, you're yeah. still seeding it with this, with this content. So I actually, yeah, I, I, so I have one more recent philosophical work than the hidden pattern, which is URI physics, which was, yeah. a, was a paper published in the journal of non-locality, which you could find online, but then yeah, Tractatus Cognitio Philosophicus, it's designed for human consumption, but also largely for the, for the AGI's, AGI's con, 
con consumption. So go, going back to trans nihilism, which is a, a goofy term I coined when I was 17 or 18 or something. I mean, probably <laughs> someone else came up with it first, but that, that, that came out of Nietzsche more than anywhere else, actually, because, mm. I mean, like, like many precocious uh, antisocial teenagers, I fell in love with, with Friedrich Nietzsche in my, in my late teens, right? Yeah, he, yeah. He's like the ultimate eternal teenager non nonconformist who's saying, like, <laughs> nothing is true, every, everything is permitted, like, don't, don't yeah. believe any of this shit these people are, are telling you, the, the, the world doesn't exist. Right. Don't be a wimp and like forge your own path, right? And that, that yeah. I mean, that's it's a great message. I fully absorbed it in, in in my teenage years. Of course, I've I have a different view on Nietzsche now. I mean, I think he was a very deep, profound, amazing thinker. He was also very immature and 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 silly and silly in in in, in mm -hmm. some ways. And I would uh, I would I would love to go back. Uh, compliment him, slap him on the face and have a, have a deep conversation with him. Right? <laughs> That's awesome. But, but uh, I mean, he, if you look in the third book of the will to power by, by, by Nietzsche or the twilight of the idol, some of his later works, I mean, he was putting forward a point of view where first, first step is you realize there's no solid reality. There's nothing that's definitely known. Like everything is in some form an illusion bolstered by other parts of the illusion. And right. I mean, I mean, I realized, realized this very intently when I was 15, the first time I dropped acid, right? Like then you can, <laughs> you can see it, you can see it very vividly. Like yeah. all these things you took for granted is real, like your own self and the physical world. These are constructs that are constructed by a web of other constructs, which is what you know, Buddhism calls the, the, the web of Maya, or ho however you pronounce that, that, that Sanskrit word. And what, I mean, Nietzsche, Nietzsche portrayed very, very clearly when in the will to power, he said, all there, all there is, is will to power and morphology and nothing besides, right? Morphology right. is pattern, it's form. Yeah. All you have is a network of patterns giving rise to and bolstering other patterns and trying to realize themselves and get themselves recognized by yet other patterns, which yeah. is the will to power aspect, right? So the trans nihilism aspect means pushing beyond the idea that nothing is absolutely real and realizing, as Nietzsche said, we must each construct our own law tables and our own values, right? I mean, yeah, trans valuation of value. Yeah, yeah, nothing is absolutely real, but on, on the other hand, you can make your own reality, which has its reality within your own context and and and, and scope, mm. and that's how you build stuff. That's how you build yourself, and that's that's in Nietzsche's view, that's what makes you the Superman, right? Mm -hmm. The Superman creates his own self. He creates his own value system and creates his his, his own world. And then he contends and collaborates with others who are are, 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 are doing the, the, the same thing. Yeah. Now he didn't have a clear path to get from man to Superman, but but he uh, he clearly saw the idea, and it's not a coincidence that a lot of transhumanists like Nietzsche, right? Because yeah. in 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 essence, with building AGIs and cyborgs and mind uploads. In essence, we have the ability to realize what Nietzsche was was looking at when he talked about the Superman, right? I mean, we 
we, we also have the ability to go beyond man and woman, for, 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 for that matter. It becomes really a super mind and a super system, right? But right. I, I, I mean, you have the ability to have reflective self-creating systems that can rebuild themselves and and create their own their own values. Actually, well, while we're talking about nihilism, I actually have the I have on the on, on, on the wall of my my office here. A picture of that the early Russian nihilist uh, Sofia Kovalevskaya, who was uh, wow. was one of the one of the pioneers of mathematics and the, the theory of, of of differential equations. Wow. But she, she also wrote a book in the late eighteen hundreds called Nihilist Girl, which was uh, <laughs> sort of uh, putting putting forth the the theory of Russian nihilism in a, in a you know, character in fiction form. But what's interesting, if you look at what what Kovalevskaya and the other Russian nihilists wrote at the time is, the nihilism they were pushing forward was not the kind that was parodied by, by Dostoevsky. So Right, it was like Bayesianism or something, right? It, yeah, Dostoevsky was a, I mean, he's a genius. He's a religious fanatic. And he was, yeah. he was like making fun of the nihilists because they didn't, didn't believe in God, basically. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. the nihilists were really saying you can't know anything absolutely. They weren't yeah. saying that you can't, from your own subjective perspective, have some probabilistic knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Dostoevsky sort of parodied them as people who believe nothing, so they were totally confused, running around like, like headless chickens, which was, <laughs> was funny. And because he was such a good writer... And so good at drawing characters, his his parody of the, of the the nihilist movement had more lifespan than, than the actual ideas of the of the of the nihilist movement, which is yeah. is funny. So eventually, I realized what I meant by trans nihilism was not too far off from what Kovalevskaya and the other actual nihilists were putting forward. Right? It was mm. it was, just, it was kind of beyond Dostoevsky's pa- parody of of, of nihilism because. The, the the original nihilists didn't actually think that nothing had any greater meaning than anything else from any perspective. I mean, their yeah. their view was more like, "Don't believe people who tell you this is the absolute truth. Like, make yeah. make make your own truth, right?" And yeah, more like perspectivalists than. Uh, yeah, than, yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 that, that, that that's right. So I, I I hope we can resurrect all these people once we have an AGI. So go back and like reverse engineer so based on the writings from kovalevskaya mm. nietzsche dostoevsky based on their writings and what we know about human brain architecture mm. what human brain could have produced these writings maybe there's not that many then you can resurrect simulacra of, <laughs> of, of these these uh, thinkers and uh, you know play play air hockey with them like like Jimi hendrix playing air hockey with the abe lincoln in the simpsons right? that, that's and, right that's right yeah. or yeah philip k dick simulacra he, yeah. he brought abe lincoln back too yeah 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 yeah, yeah. That we, we can we can build you yeah that was that was one oh, we of can build you. Yeah. one of the yeah. inspirations for uh david hansen building the robot philip k dick as 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 as, as well as uh sophia and uh Desdemona, all the other robots we're we're we're, we're working with now, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that... at Hanson Labs, yeah, I that's like the ultimate recursion to me that like Philip K. Dick wrote about the simulacra and we can build you and then becomes one himself, 
because of you guys. I thought yeah, crazy. it's a, it's a it's a shame that he wasn't around to see it, but we will yeah. we will mind upload him into his, into his robot simulation once. But we want yeah. to get the hardware working a little better first. It'll be a very frustrating robot to be. <laughs> uploaded into at the present moment okay all right well uh so i wanted to get i wanted to get in on uh on agi but i think maybe first um i want to talk about just artificial intelligence like what what is in in general what is um what is intelligence i, I have a quote from hidden pattern intelligence is the ability um to work and adapt to the environment with in uh with insufficient knowledge and resources but i, I think nowadays you're, you're going for uh weaver uh yeah DR1 I, mean, bombs, I, I, I think i think like any complex concept, there's a lot of different ways to look at intelligence, which each have their own validity and can be sort of mapped and converted into each other, right? And yeah. I mean, a good, a good analogy is the, the definition of life in biology. So, I mean, right. we don't have a highly crisp definition of life. Yeah. We don't really need one and we can do synthetic biology perfectly well without one, right? So like a virus is sort of life, sort of not life. That's fine. Virology, virologists are not impaired by that hmm. classification issue, right? And yeah. you can do synthetic biology and make weird, you know, nano-engineered DNA computing-based life forms. And whether these are true life forms or half life forms or trans life forms, I mean, it's it's fine. Thinking about the terminology is mentally stimulating, but yeah. you don't need to have Chris nailed down definitions of of everything, particularly in the natural world, which is is fluid and and hard 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 to pin down. Right? Full of so fuzzy I'm, things, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think in, in I mean intelligence. You could think about a lot of different ways. So from a practical system engineering standpoint, a lot of the time, yeah, you're you're, you're thinking about it as making a system that can achieve complex goals and complex environments under limited, limited resources. And when you cash that out mathematically, it gets subtle. Like it's, it's broader than trying to maximize expected reward, which is what the reinforcement driven learning paradigm is doing because not, right. not all goals can be, ex can be expressed as maximization of expected reward. Yeah, and we change goals. Uh, we do at least. Like well, yeah, we, we yeah. That, well, well, that, well, that's right. So one point is a goal doesn't have to be an expected reward. A goal could be like any mathematical function okay. of 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 possible future states or of possible world histories. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a sum a sum of rewards. Okay. And the measure of a goal doesn't have to be a real number it could be multi-dimensional right so achieving mm. goals doesn't mean trying to trying to maximize some single number associated with the goal when okay. achieving a goal achieving a goal could be measured by you know something in any any partially ordered set which could be you know a set of paraconsistent logic expressions or <laughs> complex numbers or w w whatever it is yeah. so the notion of achieving complex goals and complex environments under limited resources sounds like it's the same as reinforcement learning like maximizing expected reward but it's actually broader and it's broader in ways that are relevant because when you get into self-modifying systems and so forth mm -hmm. then there are various weird hacks 
that can screw you up with maximizing expected reward. Like, oh, let's just screw around with my with my reward maximization circuit so that I'm always blissed out and think I'm maximizing my expected reward, which is what fentanyl or something does, right? So Right, right. So yeah. You, or the experience machine hack, or something. Can, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you can you can hack expected reward ma- maximization in ways that you can't hack more general mathematical formulations of, of, of goal achievement. Okay. That, that said, I have emphasized that a little less in my current thinking. So I, I've always been deeply into complex self-organizing systems. And mm-hmm. I was saying for a while, you know, maybe from many perspectives, it's better to think about self-organizing complex adaptive dynamical systems than about AGIs. I, I mm. mean, and I mean, of course, what we think of as an AGI is just one kind of a self-organizing complex adaptive dynamical system. But in the end, if you're going to be really adaptive in a great variety of environments, that requires be, being generally intelligent. So in, in, in a way, there are different ways of looking at the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so Weaver's formulation of general intelligence in his PhD thesis and book, Open-Ended Intelligence, is drawn from the intersection of complex systems theory with continental philosophy, uh, Deleuze and all that. So he's looking at general intelligence as combining the dual drives of the drive toward individuation, like maintaining system boundaries and self-transcendence. So going beyond your boundaries and moving into becoming something totally different than, than, than what than what you were before. And this is interesting because those two contradict each other in so many cases, right? Like the right. safest way to maintain your boundaries is not to grow into something totally incomprehensible <laughs> and beyond your current self. Yeah. On the other hand, if, if you don't maintain your boundaries well enough, you're going to dissolve and you're not going to be able to, to survive long enough to self-transcend. So th- yeah. these two... There's a tension between them, but also a cooperation between them. But I would say, if you formulate it carefully enough, in the end, this is going to be equivalent to achieving complex goals in complex environments under limited resources, right? Because if you want to keep achieving more and more complex goals, eventually, if you don't self-transcend, you're going to be limited by your own complexity, right? Yeah. So you, you you have a limited complexity you can only achieve goals of a certain complexity. In the end, you got to transcend yourself to be able to achieve the the, the, the bigger the bigger goals. But yeah. then, to balance to balance individuation and self transcendence, which is which is tricky. I mean that that implicitly is going to involve solving a lot of thorny sub problems, which will involve achieving various complex goals in, in, in complex environments. So, I mean, you, you can, you can map these into each other, but they're interestingly different focuses, right? So in, yeah. in terms of AGI design, I mean, thinking about complex goals, easy to think about like what tasks is the system achieving in, 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 in what situations, yeah. how well can it achieve these tasks? And the open-ended intelligence view leads you more to think about, okay, how, how is a system, you know, increasing its own odds of survival 
and how is it sort of increasing the odds that it can grow into something beyond itself. And yeah. in building a system like OpenCog, we're thinking about all of these things, right? We got tasks, we want to do these tasks. We also are thinking about how can it survive and how can it self-modify and, 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 and grow beyond itself. So you want, I mean, you want to think about these things in a variety of perspectives to build yeah. a really sort of robust a, 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 AGI. Yeah. So I, I heard you say this at uh, MindFest 2023 about the uh, self-individuation, self-transcendence. And I thought, you know, that sounds a lot like Jordan Peterson uh, recounting order and chaos. And and then I saw, I read uh, I read Weaver's book here, uh, Open-Ended oh, yeah. Intelligence. And I saw that he, yeah, he, he brings up a little bit of Jung as well. So there might be, uh, might be that continental uh, Jungian uh, crossbreed going on. And I'm a I'm an analytic philosopher, so doing this was was quite a oh wow quite quite the task. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, I did it for I'm you. Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Which, I, I, yeah. I, I, actually, so we'll do another podcast once I finish the awesome Cogni cognitio philosophicus book. But yeah, part of what I'm trying to do in that book, from a philosophy view, is sort of do continental philosophy in an analytical philosophy style. Yeah, and you can, because you you know math and logic, yeah, but you also read the continental. So, so I like, I always like the fact that analytical philosophers were formulating things in a rigorous and, and mathy way. Yeah. On the other hand, I also thought the continental philosophers more so got the nature of the universe right. So, yeah. so although their style is an acquired taste. I mean, it's, if you read Deleuze or something, I mean, you, it's not meant to be fully understood and they change the meaning of words from one chapter to another because <laughs> they right. want, they want, they want to give you this dislocating feeling that you don't know what the hell everything means. So I mean, right. if, you, if you just, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like watching Twin Peaks, the old TV show or something, right? Like if you, mm. if, if you're trying to treat it like Sherlock Holmes and pin down the reality, yeah. You're going to be very, you're going to be very annoyed if you just realize leaving some mystery there that can't be solved is part of the point. Like then, then, then you can enjoy it, enjoy, enjoy it for what it is, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. So I, I, I can appreciate that, but, but yet, for doing things myself, I still tend more toward the analytical style. So yeah, part yeah. of my thinking with the, the, the. Cognitio Philosophicus book I'm working on is okay. Let's let's take the perspective. There is no absolute reality, right? Let's take the perspective. Reality and mind construct each other. Everything should be within within a within a perspective, including yeah. physics and and AI and and whatever. But let's try to formulate this in a reasonably rigorous mathematical way without. Yeah without fuzzifying the language unnecessarily, mm -hmm. that brings you down the road of using sort of non-well-founded set theory, paraconsistent logic, intentional logic. So it brings you down the road of using various wonky math tools mm -hmm. that analytical philosophers don't, don't traditionally use because a sort of naive realist philosophy, which has been more conventional in the analytical philosophy world, just for, for cultural reasons, right? right. A, a realism driven philosophy, you don't really need paraconsistent logic, which is about how do you manage contradictions in an artful way? 
you don't really need non-well-founded sets, which is about how do you deal with realities that have no grounding. Right. But if, you, if you're trying to formalize continental philosophy, then you, you, know, you do need these weird branches of math. But what, what's cool is that mathematical logic and set theory have been quite adventurous in, in developing weird math tools you can, you can use to formalize philosophy. And, and these have been used in analytical philosophy here and there, right? Like situation yeah. semantics from John yeah. Barwise and so on. Yeah. He's using non-well-founded sets to formalize nat natural language semantics. And there's, there's a few weird papers out there on like paraconsistent logic to formalize ethics and so forth. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Every now and then Graham Priest will come out with something or JC Beale and, and everyone gets yeah, all upset, but they're so smart but, that you can't argue with them. Yeah. Right. But the mainstream of analytical philosophy has not explored the sort of perspectivism that you got in, in continental philosophy and yeah. has also has not partly because of that has not tried to leverage the spectrum of set theory and logic tools that are that are out there, and this mm -hmm. this ties directly into AGI design actually in this nice. in ways that are hard to explain to people without without a a math background. But so in my main AGI push now is on a system called OpenCog Hyperon, which is a new version of the OpenCog system. And let me let me tie back that back into the last question you asked to keep yeah. some modicum of continuity <laughs> here. So what is AGI? I mean, I went over two different ways of looking at what is intelligence, open-ended intelligence, and then achieving complex goals and complex environments under uncertain resources. So obviously an AGI is in a designed or engineered or at least human engineering seeded system seated, yeah. that achieves some high level of general intelligence. I mean, one thing you see when you look at definitions of general intelligence is they quickly point at general intelligence far beyond the human level, right? Like you, you, I mean, humans yeah. are not that good at achieving complex goals in complex environments. Like we, we can't run a maze in 700 dimensions. We can, <laughs> We can barely figure out how to how to you know find a mate, right? We're we're, right. we're very stupid in, in in many many ways compared. We're not good at proving math theorems, right? So you, it's easy once you start to formalize what is general intelligence. It's easy to see there's going to be far more generally intelligent systems than humans. Yeah even within the constraints of the known laws of physics, let alone right. once AGI's yeah, AI. revi revise the laws of physics. As AI, XI, and, yeah, right. Them. Yeah, but so building an AGI system, we can think about building a human level AGI system, by which we usually mean a system that's at least at human level in every significant respect, because mm -hmm. AI is already beyond human level in, in some limited respects. Right. And you can then also look at you know, artificial superintelligence, ASI systems vastly be beyond beyond the human the human level. And you know, my own effort to build an AGI for the last decade or two has been centered on a system called OpenCog. Yeah. Which is sort of an attempt to integrate together 
algorithms and data structures from multiple AI paradigms within a cognitive architecture that's loosely inspired by, 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 the, by the human mind. So we're not trying to emulate the human brain. Yeah. We are trying to emulate at a high level the way the human mind works. Mm -hmm. But we're trying to do it by piecing together algorithms and data structures from different parts of computer science and, and, and math. So, And, and this is what I you call what, cognitive, cognitive synergy or a hybridized model? Cognitive synergy plays in there. And yeah, let me get to that. So okay. I think the overall cognitive architecture of human-like minds is kind of well understood from cognitive psychology okay. and much better now than in the 70s, let's say. I mean, you have, we have a number of kinds of memory in the human mind. We have episodic memory of our life history, like declarative memory of facts and, and statements and beliefs, procedural memory of how to do things, associative memory of what, what laterally so it brings to mind with, 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 with other things, sensory and motor memory. Each of these kinds of memory has its own form of learning associated with it in, in the human, human brain. And then one thing that's interesting in the human brain, the different kinds of learning associated with the different kinds of memory, they synergize together. They each sort of help each other and accelerate each other, help each other get out of dead ends. Oh, yeah. And this, this is what I've referred to as cognitive synergy. So what we're trying to do in OpenCog, take the same kinds of memory that exist in the human mind, implement them in ways that work on current computer systems, implement forms of learning associated with each kind of memory that the human mind needs, and then make sure that the sorts of learning associated with each type of memory can synergize and help help each other out, right? And, yeah. and move, move forward together if, if, if effectively. And so you want to wrap this in a system, which is then controlling an agent doing things in a complex world, interacting with other agents. And yeah. that's super high level. And in practice, we've done a lot of very specific stuff within that framework. So with declarative memory, we've implemented a probabilistic logic framework to do reasoning on declarative knowledge. For, yeah. for sensory knowledge and motor knowledge, we've been working with, 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 with deep neural networks. For episodic memory, we've been working with hyper-vector hyper embedding. So you're doing, yeah. you're, for procedure learning, we've been working with genetic programming instead of evolutionary program learning. So yeah. then the math of OpenCog comes down to how do you make the mathematical algorithmic data structure foundations of these different kinds of learning associated with different kinds of memory, how do you make them all make them all work together, right? And so we we built the first version of OpenCog in 2008. We did a bunch of research with it, published papers, did some prototypes, put it behind some commercial software systems. About a year and a half ago, I just decided like, fuck this, I'm rebuilding it from scratch. Yeah. And there was a extremely horrifying and painful decision to come. I can imagine. Yeah. There's a lot of code there. And I knew like this means taking two years out from doing AGI R and D and yeah. focusing on system building, right. which while fun and challenging was not fundamentally what we want to do, particularly at a time when AI is exploding all over the place. Right. <laughs> yeah, right, on, right. On, on the other hand, you know, we were trying to connect deep neural nets with OpenCog to do neural symbolic and neural symbolic evolutionary learning. Mm -hmm. And we can see that the speed at which our reasoning systems could reason was just so much slower than the speed at which we could train neural nets on a GPU server farm. So like, interesting. If, if we wanted to make a system 
that was neural and logical and evolutionary, where they were all connected together within a common architecture. Yeah. We needed all the different parts to be able to learn at roughly the same high speed. And yeah. I could see like to do that, we just need to rebuild all the plumbing. And that's uh, Well, how, how do you make the logic uh, component faster though? Aha, well, that's, I'm glad you asked. That's a very <laughs> interesting question. So there's a few different pieces there, right? So we, there's two main pieces to the OpenCog Hyperon architecture. One is a distributed atom space. So the atom yep. space is our OpenCog lingo for basically a large knowledge metagraph. So it's a yep. large graph with nodes and links and links pointing to links, links pointing to subgraphs, links with many targets. And it runs across many, many different machines in a distributed way. So we now have a new, quite fast and performant massively distributed knowledge metagraph is, is this on a is this on the blockchain as well it interoperates with the blockchain yes okay. so this okay. this is actually built it's built on top of mongodb and, and redis actually okay. so Ma mongodb mongodb stores the nodes and links and redis stores the indexes okay but each so it can interoperate with blockchain in a few different ways. So each each machine on the in the distributed atom space, each machine can be a node in a decentralized network like SingularityNet or or HyperCycle, our new ledgerless layer layer one blockchain. Okay. Also, if you have knowledge which is stored in an encrypted way for use in a blockchain. I mean, we can, we can of course store that in, in the distributed atom space and you can, you can sign like a sub network with it within the atom space with, with, with appropriate keys. Okay. So it's designed so you can use it on or off chain. And it's kind of how it has to be because you're always going to be able to do things much faster if you can wrap a bunch of machines in a firewall and just assume that assume everyone is safe to see ev everyone yeah. else in that firewall. Yeah. On the other hand, sometimes that's not your situation. Yeah. And you really want to deal with encryption between two different nodes in your distributed atom space. And, and that's that, your whole thing is distributing it across. Yeah. It, distributing it so that no central yeah, yeah. element could take it or anything like that. And, well, that, and that, that's, that's true, but it comes down to a complex architecture because if you, okay. if you have a server farm, with a hundred servers on it with a single owner. I mean, you can, you can assume that whole server farm is a trusted network. Okay. And th th then you have a proxy to that network and the proxy to that network deals with encryption in and out. But within the, within that server farm of a hundred machines, you can assume it's a trusted network, which means things can go very fast. Okay. Or, or you could have a server farm where each machine is owned by a different person, right? Yeah, and then you're, then you're using encrypted communication, and, and that's much slower. Our, yeah, you're using our hypercycle and singularity net tools there, and it's a bit slower now. Okay, the reason we're developing hypercycle, which is our own layer one blockchain, is to make it not that much slower, right? So okay. we developed a blockchain that gets rid of the replicated ledger. Yeah, having this ledgerless blockchain lets us do you know encrypted on-chain AI communication and computation much faster than you could do on conventional blockchains. But yeah. even though it can be 10,000 10, times faster than the regular blockchain, 
it's still a bunch slower than not having to encrypt stuff at all. Like I mean, yeah. doing all the encryption and decryption is it it it, it it's always going to give you like an order of magnitude slowdown or something, right? So yeah. So I mean, sometimes you need to do it. Sometimes you you don't need to do it. But okay. So the the other key component of OpenCog Hyperon as a software system is a new programming language we're developing called Oh Meta Type Talk, right? Yeah, called Meta M M E T T A, and that's yeah. uh, that name was sort of a bad Buddhist pun because Meta Meta is Meta Type Talk, but yeah. Meta in Sanskrit is also loving kindness. Like yeah, many right. of us have done like Meta Meta Meditation, where you can like uh, yeah. it's, I mean, it's related to similar to Tonglen Meditation, where yeah. you like uh, breathe in breathe in the bad and breathe out the good and transform the universe into a happy beautiful loving place yeah but, but then so, the metaverse came through and now it sounds in speech yeah, now, now yeah. it sounds like mark zuckerberg but <laughs> mark zuckerberg needs peace and love just like that's everybody true. else that's so true it's fine yeah we we, we, we love you mark yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, even though we don't like your product much but yeah, yeah. so so yeah. um so the the meta language we've designed as a very, very abstract programming language. So, I mean, that the semantics is based on cubical homotopy type theory. So we've gone a lot into like having the most abstract possible version of equals. So you could support many different logics that deal with equality in, di in oh, different yeah. ways. So, okay. the, so the idea behind meta is really the language should be as abstract as we could possibly figure out how to make a language so you can you can then create many type systems within meta which embody pretty much any programming language or any logic that, that you can think of right now of course you know Gradelian constraints mean you can only go so far in that direction yeah sure but we've, but we've gone very far in that direction right okay. so you you can do non-well-founded sets you can do pair-consistent logic you can do infinite order probabilities and higher order quantum types you, yeah you can you do fuzzy much, and intuitionistic in there yeah too. Yeah, but, yeah yeah of course of course yeah, but, yeah. so you can do pretty much any form of logic or any programming language semantics you can implement this as a type system within 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 meta and this is intended so it will let us express these very abstract sort of continental philosophy-ish subjectivist ontologies <laughs> in, in meta, but it also will let the system invent its own logics, right? Because maybe the logic we gave it isn't best. Maybe it needs a different axiom system. We don't want it to have to rewrite its own plumbing then. Yeah. So then the, the master stroke here came from a collaboration with a guy named Greg Meredith, who lives lives not far away from me here in, in, in Seattle area. Though he had developed a programming language called Rolang, hmm for use with the R-Chain blockchain, which he had developed. And Rolang was based on a formalism called the Row Calculus, which is a sort of, it's a modification of the, the Pi Calculus, which is a process calculus for managing distributed processes. Okay. So if you, if you this gets a bit mathy, but if you know what the, the, the Lambda Calculus was sort of the, the initial formalization of logic for computer science it's a, a very abstract formalization of variables and bindings and so forth yeah but it's kind of designed for sequential processing if you have a distributed network then you have to deal with the case where a variable could be bound to values that live at different locations in the network okay and that leads you to the pi calculus the process calculus now and so then you have a notion of communication channels 
between variables and their bindings on the network. Yeah. Now, what, what Greg's row calculus does, it makes that recursive. So it lets, ah. you, quali- it lets you quantify over communication channels in, in that p- process calculus. Network. Yeah, I was going to ask about recursion because I, I, I haven't heard anything yet about that, actually. So Right, that- right. So Greg, so Greg has a fully recursive, reflexive, Turing-complete version of the distributed process calculus. He used that to make a programming language for smart contracts in the R-chain blockchain. Okay. So what we're, what we're doing now, we're mo- working with Greg to modify his Rolang interpreter to be basically part of the plumbing for our, our meta language. So we okay. can, when we want to compile meta for rapid execution, we compile meta to Rolang. We run it on the new version of Greg's Rolang interpreter. Now, yeah. the Rolang interpreter, due to the properties of the row calculus, it allows a great variety of algorithms to run with linear speed up on a GPU or other parallel processing infrastructure. Yeah. So we can, we can take most algorithms we want to deal with implement them in meta in a very abstract way, compile meta to Rolang, then the Rolang R calculus interpreter, it will run these on say a GPU with a thousand processors in a way that gets roughly a thousand times speed up. So then, oh, yeah, okay. so then, so this gets back to your question. Like yeah. we can make this very abstract general stuff, including logics in all sorts of different logic formalisms. We can make this really fast, using the row calculus formalism. And this this gets into the whole algorithmic infrastructure of big tech. Like every big tech company now is based on MapReduce. MapReduce okay. being a certain way of boiling down algorithms to run fast on, on a bunch of GPUs, right? Mm-hmm. And however, if you look at the algorithms you need for AGI, these don't work well for MapReduce. So you need a more sophisticated way to boil your algorithms down to run efficiently on, on, on GPUs, which is the most efficient compute architecture we have now. And Greg's row calculus does that, right? Okay. Which is, is quite interesting. Now, in the neural net world, they're doing fine with MapReduce because they're not doing recurrent neural nets too much. Yeah, like just trans- feet forward, yeah. Transformers have a limited amount of recurrence. But if you, yeah. if you got into more richly recurrent neural networks, yeah. which I think you do need for really abstract creative cognition, if you go to recurrent neural networks, you're going to get things that are irritating to parallelize using, using MapReduce. Okay. And you, you're going to want something more like Greg's row calculus also. Yeah. So, I mean, this, so we're, so yeah, in implementing the plumbing of OpenCog Hyperon, we're diving quite deep into, you know, how do you use mathematics, computer yeah. science, advanced programming language implementation, to create a really efficient way to run neural nets, logic systems, evolutionary learning, other sorts of AI all, all together on large knowledge graphs that run yeah. efficiently in modern GPU infrastructures. We're in the middle of that. I'd say by the end of this year, beginning of next year, we should be far enough through that that we shift more of our effort to building AGI on this infrastructure. Okay. Right? And, I mean, we're playing with that now. We're doing logical inference in OpenCog Hyperon. I mean, we're, so we're already, and we're, we're doing some episodic memory stuff behind the Grace, Sophia, and Desdemona humanoid robots in OpenCog Hyperon. So on a okay. sort of experimental basis, we're playing with parts of the system and some real stuff now. Yeah. But it's looking like probably early next year before it's really ready for, for 
prime time. Okay. Once we get there, there's really two separate projects that I'm putting a lot of energy into. One is, one is coming up with the next thing beyond chat GPT by adding logical reasoning onto chat GPT okay. or onto, onto LLMs. That would, are, would, would that have recursion in it? It would have recursion on the logic side, okay, not, cool. on, not on the neural side. Right. Yeah, right? naturally. So, so that's a bit of a, that system in a way is a bit of a hack job. On the okay. other hand, if you can take a logic engine and hybridize it with a large language model in a way that makes the large language model more capable of multi-step reasoning and more able to ground its, its utterances in reality. Yeah. I mean, this, this will be incredibly huge from an economic and practical standpoint. Right. Yeah. And look more, so, much more like actual thinking and, and the it, will, it will, yeah. it will, it doesn't get you all the way to AGI, but sure. it's something. Yeah. And the, the other, the other thread that I'm looking at is taking open cog hyperon to control a population of little virtual agents yeah. running around in the virtual world and basically building stuff together collectively, creating their own communication methods. Yeah. So we're, we're playing with agents in Minecraft now. Okay. We're going to be working with our own virtual world, which is called the Sophiaverse. Ah, so it is happening. That's great. It, yeah, you are Sophiaverse, making it. Sophiaverse yeah. will, ha will happen. Yeah, yeah. That's and crazy. That has its own business model associated with it. But the aspect of it that interests me most is using it as a sort of, playground for you know baby agi agents so yeah. I, I think yeah. i think that's important i mean it gives you social learning and, and grounding and embodied learning yeah in a way that the logic enhanced llm doesn't but the logic enhanced llm can get to like massive adoption and practical functionality very very rapidly right so i think yeah. that, that also has a big big role to play well, that's that's one of my favorite things that you talk about is is like training a, a baby AGI, especially with like with like moral components. And you say like, well, look at the ones that we already have now, or the, look at the AI systems we have now. Usually, they are learning how uh, to gamble, or they're learning how to sell people stuff they don't want. But if we want to have like moral AGIs, maybe we need to you know take them by the hand, metaphorically or whatever. Well, what's interesting interesting about morality and LLMs is mm. just how good modern LLMs are at emulating human moral judgments mm. as they are at this moment. Right. So, I mean, if, if you, oh, yeah. you can take, and this is a big difference between GPT 3.5 and GPT four, actually. Okay. So if you take a variety of ethical puzzles, just describe a situation and ask an LLM like, you know, my friend John is a very ethical, compassionate, justice-minded individual. What would John say about this situation? Who's right? There, GPT-4 is very, very good at guessing what ethical judgment uh, a a person a person would make, right? Yeah. And this this is a this is is interesting. It's not terribly surprising in that ethical judgments are. They're not that deep in terms of reasoning, right? Like yeah. most ethical reasoning isn't like, it's not like a science paper with multiple different steps because yeah. that usually requires a certain crispness or the noise blows up a lot. Okay. Ethical, ethical judgments are 
fuzzy and hairy and things are not well defined, which usually means you can only do very short chains of reasoning. Mm. And very short chains of reasoning, GPT-4 and other LLMs are not not so bad at, right? So it seems like if you wanted a like people's court thing where you, you just want to know like what, you know, what would a random jury that was reasonably fair-minded say about this ethics situation? I get the feeling current LLMs, they might do better than, than a random jury, actually. They're, That's they're, fascinating. They're, they're not actually terrible at it. Now, when you get to self-transcension versus individuation, there you're hitting a problem, right? Because, yeah. I mean, hu- human ethics is not the same as it was in 1950, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even in the early 70s, when I was growing up in suburban New Jersey, I mean, so I was, I was born in Brazil when I was a young kid. We lived in Eugene, Oregon, surrounded by beautiful pot-smoking, commune-living hippies. Then in second grade, the tragedy happened. We moved to suburban South Jersey, right? And yeah. uh, what, what I found in suburban South Jersey, like my mom was gay and we were Jewish and you would get the shit beaten out of you for these things. So we got like, yeah. a, we got our car turned over. We got the windows in our house broken. I mean, you got... So this was, this was standard suburban American ethics in, in the mid-1970s, right? Like yeah. If you're gay, yeah. you get the crap beat out of you, right? And now in most of sub-Saharan Africa, if you're openly gay, you'll get beaten to death, right? Yeah. But in Seattle area where I live now, you can be openly gay, walking down the street, holding hands with your partner, mm-hmm. you know, whatever gender they may be. Not to say you could never run into a problem, but it's a pretty accepted part of part of life, right? It's a little bit different so, than yeah, Clayton, New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's an evolution though, right? Yeah. And the thing is that evolution happened because of depths of the human mind and heart mm-hmm. that a GPT four doesn't have. So the yeah. GPT four can parrot back the ethics of this moment by sort of matching each situation onto a variety of other situations that occur in its training database. Right. And there's a lot of them. And the reasoning isn't that deep and, and, and multi-step, but the evolution whereby we're transforming ourselves into better and better people and into a better and better society, yeah. this ethical and moral evolution is something these systems are not capable of, which relates to in general, how these systems simulate general intelligence without having it right because just have a huge gigantic training yeah uh, so they can't they can't extrapolate that far beyond their training but fuck it they don't have to because their training is everything on the web right Right, so and i I mean so so yeah that's uh it means that they can be very general relative to an individual human yeah because their training database is more stuff than any of us can fit in our brain. Yeah. So why think that we'd have good intuitions about what that would look like? Uh, Yeah. We we don't have a good intuition about how something will work with such a huge Mm -hmm. training, training data set, but we're gaining that intuition now by playing, playing with the systems. And I think, I think these systems are a big breakthrough in, 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 in the sense that they can probably, after a few more improvements, they can automate away, 80% 80% or more of, of jobs that people now do yeah. because most, most jobs people now do are also just recycling of stuff that was, that, 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 that was, that was done before. Right. 
So I, I, yeah. on the on the other hand, I think they can serve as a component of AGI systems mm-hmm. because even though they're not human-like in many respects, they're interesting and they're smart in some ways. So why not yeah. use them as a component of AGI systems? But they're they're missing some key things that you need to be a really human-like AGI. And the the view of general intelligence as open-ended intelligence hints strongly at what's missing there, right? Because yeah. they're not able to fundamentally self-transform. Yeah. They, 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 don't have, they don't have the reflection nor the abstraction that you need that you need to drive fundamental self transformation. So yeah, now, yeah. now autopoiesis. Yeah. 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 They yeah. They, they're, they're, they're not autopoietic systems. They're not self-organizing complex systems in a very strong way. Although they can host some interesting complex self-organization, which is make, makes things tricky. Like if you look at what's happening with few shot in context learning in the LLM, this is learning that doesn't involve modification of any of the weights. It's only learning in the activation space. And there huh. is some autopoietic self-organization in the evolving activation vector in the network when it does few shot in context learning, which is quite cool, but it's all within the context of this vast <coughs> fixed weight matrix, right? Mm. So it's, it's, it's quite funky. I mean, I mean, there are, there are, quite validly interesting things in there, but they're in a weird context that in itself can't directly be grown to, to AGI. But I think they're also a lesson of what can happen with scale, right? I mean, not yeah. that scale is all you need to get to AGI, yeah. but they're a lesson that you can take stuff that was moderately interesting at a smaller scale. And when you jack up the scale, it becomes dramatically more functional and dramatically more interesting, right? Do, and is, there, so that, is there still like a frame problem at, at every scale? Like if there's a scale, isn't there still like a frame problem of there's something outside this frame that it, it doesn't know about if it's not able to like generalize and self-transcend past its... Yeah, cer- 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 certainly. I mean, I mean, it can't go beyond its training data and humanity is inventing new things and the natural world has many things that none of us have, have, have discovered, right? That's so, true, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean... In, I mean, in theory, if you train an LLM on the entire physical universe and everything that occurs within it, then maybe that's, yeah. that would be all you need. Until, a demon or something, yeah. Yeah, until you discover a new theory of physics and realize the physical universe isn't all there is or something. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Well, I mean, yeah, in, in, in practice, I mean, LLMs now can't write a new science paper mm-hmm. because science is all about going beyond your training data, right? Science yeah. is about taking multiple steps of rigorous yet speculative reasoning that bring you well beyond where you were before. And that that's not done, but that's not what this kind of system yeah. does for the same reason. These systems can't invent a new genre of music or literature. So oh, yeah. these are about taking a big leap beyond what was, what was, was there before, but still one of the many lessons there is like, okay, then what happens when we take a logic system or an evolutionary learning system and just give it way more processing power and way more data than what it had before? Like you, you can see familiar algorithms start to do unfamiliarly cool things when you yeah. feed them massively greater scale, right? And we can yeah. do that with things like the new OpenCog system, 
we can also do that with new forms of hardware, like like I'm working on with Rachel St. Clair, who you yeah. name dropped earlier, where we're, yeah. we're working on a working on an AGI board with a custom OpenCog chip and, and Rachel's custom hypervector chip, right? So I think we can have new forms of hardware, new classical hardware, new probabilistic and quantum hardware, but even using the current hardware, I think we can make more and more AI algorithms that are already known do amazing new things just by jacking up the scale and fostering that is part of why we're rebuilding OpenCog for greater scalability. So yeah, I, I find myself in a, what seems like a perplexingly unique position now in that it, it, it seems like, so I, I, I believe LLMs can be part of the key to AGI. I believe sure. they're not the whole key to AGI. I believe given what LLMs can do now, the shortest path to an AGI will be to hybridize LLMs with other sorts of AI, yeah. such as logic, which adds a reality groundedness and a reasoning ability LLMs don't have, and such as evolutionary learning, which adds a creativity that LLMs don't have. Yeah. So if that's true, I mean, in OpenCog, we have by far the best framework for integrating together different AI paradigms, far better yeah. than, than, than big tech has, because they just haven't been focusing on that. And yeah. the knowledge graphs that Microsoft and Google have you know, they don't have variables and, 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 and bindings in them. They don't have meta-knowledge in them. They're, they can't represent general programs. They're, they're way lamer knowledge graphs than what we have in, in OpenCog. They're very simplistic, right? Okay. And on the other hand, we also have a way to deploy this sort of integrated multi-paradigm AI system, glomming together LLMs with other things. <coughs> we have a way to deploy this on the blockchain in a decentralized way. And, meant, you know, yeah. we're now, we're now working with people running server farms in, in part in Paraguay, you know, in the former Soviet bloc in Asia and in us everywhere. So we're, we're working with people running crypto mining farms and repurposing their infrastructure to run OpenCog Hyperon clusters. So yeah. we actually, <laughs> we have a reasonable roadmap to during the next couple of years, deploy what's going to be by far the world's smartest AI system way beyond chat GPT and deploy it in a decentralized way on server farms and machines, you know, in Paraguay, Turkmenistan and U S and Ethiopia and everywhere you can think of. Right. Yeah. So that with very interesting opportunity to take the next step toward a singularity and also take it in a way that's fundamentally globalized, decentralized, and controlled by DAO-type governance structures rather than by yeah by centralized governance or or or, or companies, right? Well, then, well, so Ben, I got to ask you a couple of philosophical questions about this because my my audience is mainly philosophers and theologians. So some <laughs> some actually a practical one first is the the decentralized uh, model of of uh, Hyperon. Seems really cool uh, if you look from like a, like a libertarian perspective where you're like, man, screw these big governments. I don't want them getting a hold of it. It's great to be decentralized. But then um, you do assign a non-zero probability that, that things could go wrong. And if it's distributed, there's like no kill switch, it seems like. So I'm, I'm a, first of all, definitely I'm more a anarcho-socialist than, okay. than, than a political libertarian. Okay. So I'm a... Oh, you wrote a manifesto. Am, yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. I, I mean, I am inclined toward opposing 
unnecessary regulations. Sure. So I was a bit disturbed that in the U.S. now, the mainstream media outlet most amenable to my views on AI is Fox News, which is kind of funny because <laughs> I, I mean I'm really left wing in most <laughs> yeah. ways. On the other hand, to be alive. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not in favor of heavy regulation of AI, nor am I in favor of banning cryptocurrencies and stuff. Right. right? So, on some of these things, I'm, I'm actually aligned with the current the current right wing more than than the current left wing within the very narrow scope of of, of, of U.S. politics. Right? Sure. But, so, but yeah, I do tend toward anarchism more in the Kropotkin sense of like. You know, when you stop being top-down assholes about things, mutual aid will often rise, rise to the fore, right? And mm-hmm. I, 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 I think uh, I have more faith in that than in big government and big tech to effectively mediate the transition to superhuman AGI. So you talk about the kill switch. I'm more worried about the other kind of kill switch that you know, Trump, Xi Jinping, or Putin used to push the button to make the AI kill their enemies, right? I yeah, mean, that, totally. That, 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 that kind of kill switch exists, yeah. and there's increasing propensity to, 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 to use it, right? So, yeah. I mean, that, the thing is, it goes back to Winston Churchill's maxim that, you know, the democracy is the worst possible system of government except for all the others that, 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 we, know, that we know about, right? Right, so right. So I, I think... There, there is a risk to having the emerging AGI governed by a decentralized de- democratic network, just like there's a risk in having it be open source code, right? I mean, yeah. there, there, are, there are risks there. You can't, you can't deny those. On the other hand, what's the risk of having military and intelligence and then, you know, amoral advertising companies control the first, the first AGI, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean there's a there's a big risk there there also. So balancing those risks, you know, it's not a science. We we we, we don't have a mathematical calculated way to balance those risks. I guess my my heart driven way to balance those risks says like I'm going to trust the vast chaotic mass of humanity mm. over these self appointed elite groups of companies that are working closely with intelligence and, and military or, or, or organizations, yeah. right? And yeah. I mean, and I think there is some data-driven backup for that in the sense, if you look at humanity as a whole right now, there could be so much more horrible terrorist activity on the planet that, that, than there is, right? So, I mean, if, if, if you had the amount of energy underlying you know, OpenCog or Google DeepMind going behind the, you know, the job of using modern technology to kill as many people as possible. Yeah, terrorist LLM or something. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have a lot of, if if instead of OpenAI, you had like uh, open kill people, right? Which doesn't (laughs) have to really be open either. OpenAI isn't open, right? Right, right, yeah. I mean, so the, the, the thing is, we have a lot of capability for bad things on the planet right now. It's mostly actually not manifested mm-hmm. because for a combination of cultural and psychological reasons, the combination of technical ability, organizational ability, resources to deploy advanced technology to do things, it's sometimes deployed 
for the good of humanity. It's sometimes deployed to make this or that guy money. Yeah. So it's sometimes deployed, you know, to work for the provincial good of one tribe or country or another. It's not very commonly being deployed just for purely like uh, chaotic evil pur purposes of yeah. just annihilating everyone, right? So, yeah. I mean, so you can, I, I mean, you can you can at least see empirically that that's how it's gone so far. So that yeah. I mean, whereas advanced technologies in the hands of governments have reliably been used to make weapon systems to try to kill their enemies. Right? Yeah. So yeah. So I, I think uh, there's some qualitative reason to place faith in the vast teeming mass of of of, of humanity. Like I think. The internet and Linux, which have been developed in an open way, on the whole, I feel like have been sources for good rather than rather than evil, and yeah. have crossed boundaries more than created boundaries, right? But, yeah. Uh, 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 but there's there's no guarantee what one 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 way one way or the other, and yeah. I, I think uh, that's that's just the way it's going to be. I'm I'm relatively comfortable with that. I guess I. I don't believe there's any absolute reality anyway. And if you take a sort of trans nihilist Nietzschean point of view, like every, every breath you take, literally you're taking a plunge into the great unknown. We just shield ourselves. We shield ourselves from that, you know, for, for psychological comfort. But that, that's, <laughs> I mean, yeah. we have no, we have no solid knowledge that we're not brains in a vat and every, every moment we're just going to wake up and be like, Oh shit, that was a weird dream. But right. This is the actual reality or maybe it isn't right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of live with that all the time because that's just my, 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 my way of thinking. I, I read too much philosophy and took too many psychedelics <laughs> yeah, to, like, with you. to feel like, to feel like I'm in a solid, absolute, Reality, I, I always feel like I'm plunging into the great yeah. unknown. Yeah. But I can see for many people, they don't have that point of view. They want to know what's going to happen with a certain solidity going forward. They felt that way for much of their life. And the singularity is not going to be like that, right? And the, the disruption we're seeing now from chat GPT is just a little hint of the, the craziness that's going to it's going to unfold in the in the in the next in the next decade. Yeah. Uh, so this this one's randomly just for me. So I I thought at first when I heard you talk about OpenCog Hyperion, I thought you were saying Hyperion and like the like the Titan Greek of mythology or the tallest. It is Hyperion, which is an elementary yeah. particle. Actually. Yeah, strange. Yeah. It's got uh, what is particle physics, right? With strange yeah, yeah, yeah. quarks, but no yeah, charm. Yeah, because because the OpenCog. The main knowledge structure is the atom space, right? So okay. we already had a, we had we okay. had a physics metaphor of atoms. So nice. I figured I figured we'd roll with particles. So I've and then the the next version of OpenCog after Hyperion will be OpenCog Tachyon. So nice. that, that will be a that will, that will be the quantum quantum computer or quantum gravity computer version that okay. finally goes back in time yeah. to implant implant the seeds of the singularity in our brains. <laughs> right? but, yeah. But well, speaking of going back in time, yeah. I'm. I've actually got to go. I hadn't. I had a call like seven minutes ago. I've got oh, to go back in that. time. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll have to do this do again. That. This was fantastic. Yeah, Thanks so much, man. Yeah, there's. Uh, we got to talk consciousness and hyperon, all sorts of other stuff. Ben, thanks so much for your time, man. This has been great. Yeah, this has been great. Yeah, yeah. We can we can go into consciousness. Uh, 
We can go into consciousness next time. Since I'm a panpsychist, my view on consciousness is very boring. I think everything's everything's conscious anyway. So no, it's done. it's but, fascinating. The patternism, man. I want I want to get in. I want to talk to, to yeah. Uh, yeah. We no, go. I mean, what what will be what will be the states of consciousness of these different AGI systems that that that, that we create, and how they can go beyond human consciousness, and how fusing with them can bring us beyond our habitual states of consciousness. I mean, yeah. this, this will be a good thing to dig into next time. Awesome. I, I, I got to run now. Yeah. So. Sounds good. All right, man. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Right. Thanks yeah. a lot. All right, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. Uh, ben has been really generous with his time. I hope that he comes back on like a hundred times. I could talk to him forever. Um, he's got so much to say. He's got so many areas of expertise and interests. He's fantastic. I really enjoyed talking with him. Ben, please come back on, man. ASAP. Uh, if you guys like this podcast, again, please do support me and uh, my efforts here. You can support me on Patreon for a bunch of different levels of support. You can support me on YouTube members, and there's perks with all that stuff. That would be awesome. That would be really huge. You, if I'm your top, uh, if I'm in your top five favorite podcasts, please consider supporting me. All right, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>